This episode is brought to you by Vin Italy International Academy, the toughest Italian wine program. 1,000 candidates have produced 262 Italian wine ambassadors to date. Next courses in Hong Kong, Russia, New York, and Verona. Think you make the cut? Apply now at vinitalyinternational.com. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. In this Vin Expo inspired episode, I'm joined by not one, but two guests, as well as my very favorite partner in crime, Robert Joseph. First up today is Ricardo Pasqua, CEO of Pasqua Wines. Robert Joseph and I were lucky enough to catch a few minutes of his time at Vinexpo to talk about the lately released Pasqua Manifesto. Let's get into it. I want to start with the manifesto. Ah, ah there you go. So you are well informed. I, I, um, Very good. thank you, Matteo, for that one. But how about you talk me through where that came from? Well, I mean, I'm very glad we started this conversation from the manifesto. I mean, I I wasn't expecting that. And uh, and it's great because, uh, you know, the manifesto is really um, the, the, uh, how can I say, the achievement of many work, uh, of many years of work, uh, of many years of experimenting, of many years of launching uh, new concepts. And the manifesto explains uh, in few words uh, who we are and uh, what our our values are and uh, sums up uh, in one single sentence very simple just a few words uh, what is pasqua today after all these years as i was saying before and pasqua is uh, house of the unconventional so house of the unconventional is uh, our uh, new payoff tagline is our new ID card, if you may, which uh, um, in in just one brief sentence sums up uh, uh, all uh, our values, uh, which uh, basically uh, are the sum of amazing projects from winemaking to communication that uh, brought us to. Uh, this new uh, communication platform called House of the Unconventional. So how do you think that that manifesto has evolved over the past, you know, we're rapidly approaching 10 years since your generation has taken over leadership of the brand. Do you feel like it's the essence of what the brand was then just put into practice? Or do you feel like the message itself has really changed with you guys taking the lead? Yeah, definitely. Definitely the second. The message changed completely since the third generation uh, took uh, the helm of, uh, of uh, the company in 2014, uh, everything changed. You know, our skin changed completely from, uh, you know, the, the people to the vineyards to how we make uh, our wines to how we bring the message out there. So, you know, it's been the, the, the combination of few factors, you know, coming together uh, first, uh, 
to your point, the governance. So, you know, being uh, uh, just uh, uh, one uh, family looking to, to a very clear direction. Second, understanding uh, uh, the importance of being uh, present uh, directly in some pivotal markets such as USA, for example, where we, as you know, we have our uh, importing company and uh, a company that allow us to understand uh, uh, in a lifetime, you know, before everybody else, uh, some trends and some, uh, uh, some uh, new uh, uh, trends. And, uh, and, uh, but the last one, and maybe the most uh, important one, uh, was the launch of a series of projects that uh, uh, starting from uh, Romeo and Juliet in 2014, uh, going through My Dire Mai in 2016, uh, 11 Minutes in 2017, A French in 2019, a series of projects uh, that uh, have put together our creativity, our boldness uh, and our positively uh, positive disruptiveness uh, uh, together with uh, 97 years of legacy 97 years of uh, of heritage no and uh, these wines uh, uh, really uh, changed completely the scenario for us and uh, and brought the pasqua back on the map and uh, brought pasqua back on the map uh, very distinctively so pasqua today is a very unique uh, animal which uh, is very difficult to compare with uh, with uh, uh, you know other uh, wineries in our area because everything we do is unconventional. That's why, to your point, the new tagline, which uh, is going to be the the base of the new communication platform, is really tailored on us. We were already the house of the unconventional year after year. Um, Today we are proud uh, to bring it out, uh, to, to say to the world uh, loud and clear. I'm interested in when you're talking about being unconventional, how do you deal with the customers who want the conventional? How do you deal with the 50, 60, 70 year old customers who are buying traditional DOCs, DOCGs and want things the way they were? Do you not risk, by using this manifesto, do you not risk losing them to competitors who are saying, well, you know, we're still maintaining the old quote-unquote values? Well, for sure. For sure we risk to lose uh, them. There's uh, no question about it. Uh, but, you know, this is who we are. This is uh, our DNA. Um, and I think... Uh, what have happened over the past six years uh, uh, really showed us that uh, is uh, is the right path. Meaning, uh, we have been able to catch uh, uh, partners around the world and new consumers uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, you know uh, maybe before we're looking uh, at producer from from the new world uh, or maybe weren't expecting from an Italian producer of 97 years old such an approach. And, uh, and uh, in the meantime, uh, uh, I agree with you. We, we uh, risk to lose some more traditional audience, uh, even if uh, 
I think uh, unconventionality could be interpreted in many ways. It, it not uh, as to be uh, only, you know, the way is communicated, uh, not to be only the way uh, the, the tone of voice could be also a style, for example. And uh, and to your point, I think uh, uh, our mai dire mai is uh, uh, at the same time unconventional because was. Uh, one of the first Samarone uh, going to the market with uh, a much uh, austere, dry, vertical uh, style, but at the same time uh, is a very classical wine, meaning is something you can uh, uh, keep in your cellar basically forever and, and something that uh, um, even the, the, the most savvy wine lovers and wine experts could uh, appreciate. So, bottom line, yes, uh, the, the, the statement we have made is very bold and goes uh, very clearly towards a direction. But within our series of projects, uh, there are few that can, uh, can also encounter the, um, the requests and the taste of those that are more, uh, or those audience that is more related to the tradition and to uh, the old school uh, uh, style. In, in terms of markets, how have the Italians responded to the change? Because I know sitting outside of Italy and looking at it from both a New Zealand perspective as well as an American perspective, it has been very progressive from the labels to the arts to the relationships that you built with, for instance, Wired. I mean, you did a whole, uh, a whole collaboration with Wired magazine, which this is out of the box for wine. So how has the home front um, viewed the changes? Yeah, you know, I, I am very proud to say that, uh, you know, all the new projects uh, we launched, uh, even the ones that we were expecting uh, uh, to be successful only either in the Anglo-Saxon markets or in the emerging markets, have been very well received uh, both from uh, uh, the domestic market uh, and from uh, the most mature and uh, let's say conservative markets like continental Europe. Uh, uh, so, I mean, uh, I think, uh, I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, our partners, first of all, and ultimately the consumers, uh, um, so in Pasqua, the effort of being something very unique, uh, and uh, and uh, at the end of the day, they they are embracing it. Uh, I mean, the the first uh, wine we are selling in Italy on premise is our Romeo and Juliet, which if you think, it's uh, it's quite unexpected, no? Because being an IGT and uh, and sold uh, from a very traditional region. Uh, I didn't expect that, but uh, looks like there's a new generation of restaurant owners, a new generation of bartenders, a new gener and a new generation of uh, wine consumers that are trying to look to the wine business uh, uh, in, a, in a little uh, more casual way, in a little uh, more lifestyle way, if you, me if you may, uh, not uh, too technical, uh, still with a lot of tradition, but you know, they are trying uh, probably a 
to find uh, wines uh, and, and bottles uh, that are talking with them, you know, that they are interacting with them, they are blinking uh, an eye to them in uh, how they are communicating and, and, uh, and uh, how they are narrated. You control a lot of your, um, uh, of your own methods of distribution. You mentioned this earlier to, uh, in the interview. How does all of the information that you can gain via control of those methods of distribution allow you to make decisions about what the next product is going to be or what a market's looking for and really allow the brand to be more market driven? It's absolutely crucial, crucial, as I was saying before, uh, being present uh, with our own uh, organizations have been one of the intuitions that uh, uh, really helped us uh, make uh, a big leap forward. Uh, because, you know, being on the market, uh, very, you know, stupidly having uh, the same uh, time zone, uh, having the same uh, angle, you know, the same slang, the same way of thinking, it really makes a huge difference and uh, and so has been crucial in many decisions we made probably the most uh, the most important one which is really under uh, a very very good example is 11 minutes you know 11 minutes uh, we we always known we always know that uh, uh, the garda lake is an area where you can do amazing rosé wines but we never got uh, the right angle. And being in America and seeing uh, in 2011, 12, 13, uh, what uh, uh, the champions of the category, so Southern France was doing, uh, it really opened uh, my eyes and say, are we sure that we cannot uh, approach uh, the Garda Lake uh, with a different uh, angle, uh, trying to find a style that goes uh, more towards the world, trying to why make a rosé that is uh, uh, has a, its own dignity that uh, it, it can play a very precise role in the wine list uh, and in a restaurant menu so we started to 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 work uh, on the first uh, vinifications uh, and we decided to go with the 11 minutes so going up out of the appellation uh, but still very related and deeply embedded to the to the Garda Lake to the soil, to the terroir. Are you willing to talk about some of the experiments that didn't work? So I think the, the, the biggest problem we, we had, uh, it has the, the pace, meaning sometimes uh, our pipeline was so full of new things that was uh, very difficult uh, for the organization and uh, uh, later for the, you know our partners organization to digest them and make them equally successful so uh, that's that's uh, our biggest uh, issue in terms of testing so if we look at the US which is a huge country a huge set of markets not one market as we know a company like Gallo or the wine group would test a new concept in one corner of the country without anyone knowing about it and it fails or it's it. Other people are testing products digitally, um, putting out uh, concepts, labels and so on. Again, most people won't be aware of that happening. And then the third group I know of is wineries that do a lot of testing through 
um, their wine tourism um, offer. And so you say, right, we have 50,000 people visit our winery. We've now got a dark rosé or we're going to give a blue label or something else. And we found that this is working or not working. Which of those models work for you or if any of them? None of them. <laughs> None of them. No, we, we, no, we didn't. Uh, make any test outside of our organization probably you know the the main reason is that we are family company a relatively small uh, in in the big uh, uh, corporate world so we really relied uh, on the professionalism of our talents so when we got an idea uh, first of all uh, I mean uh, you know we taste uh, a lot we travel a lot with the key team and we have been more or less everywhere we talk to the people and uh, and then we go back and sit sit around the table and try to you know again put on the table our experiences and our professionalism and ultimately we take the risk when we go out but no we don't we don't do any tests whatsoever yeah just before we wrap this up, there's one thing I want to make certain that we get into this discussion, and that is your open um, commitment to sustainability across the brand. If you can just talk to us about sort of what's driven that and how you've seen that grow during the time that you've been leading the brand and maybe where you think Pasqua is going as the torchbearer for sustainable, sustainable practices in Italy. Absolutely. So, well, first of all, I think everything starts from uh, from the people, no? from the culture. And uh, as, as I said before, we are 97 years old, but uh, the, the talents, the, 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 the team, the organization is very young, is uh, way under 40 as an average age. So you have, you imagine how sensible uh, Pasqua as a culture is uh, towards these uh, subjects. Having said that, uh, we have uh, a little, uh, uh, let's say, credo uh, in, inside of Pasqua when it comes uh, to sustainability, which is uh, action, not perfection. We don't want to make, uh, you know, statements and we don't want to make uh, any sort of propaganda we want to make a uh, few little things day after day brick after brick in order to give our contribution so what we have done until now as far as uh, environmental sustainability uh, we took uh, this year this year 2021 so last year um, a certification equalitas which is uh, important which is one of those certification that uh, checks out the most of uh, uh, you know the requirements also internationally is a certification that uh, you know give uh, us uh, uh, the the ambition of not only um, achieving uh, the the targets of the year but uh, of uh, uh, writing a plan for the next years plan that will be uh, tracked in every year bilancio. No? Every year we will uh, issue a sustainability report which will be included in the books of the company which in Italy are public as you know. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's one thing as far as uh, environmental sustainability we are also uh, moving uh, 
some of the core uh, production of our group towards organic farming in order to achieve uh, the plan is by 2023 is going to be uh, a little over 10% of the total production of our vineyards so owned and controlled vineyards and um, 2025 which is our uh, centenary double it 20% so we already of course have uh, uh, addressed uh, everything in order towards that is not something that you decide uh, night to uh, night time so um, but something I'm very proud of and I think is very in line with our culture is the social sustainability uh, and we are I think quite innovative in that because we introduced in 2020 a mental coaching class a mental coach program let's say so like uh, like a pro athlete so the idea now is uh, of course to 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 enhance your strengths and address your weaknesses and that was uh, that was really great i think it really was uh, an additional glue if you may to our team no because uh, it, it it was really an instrument that allowed us to you know go out from ourselves and watch us uh, from outside and and uh, it was very useful. So I'm cognizant that we've taken up 30 minutes of your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ricardo. Are you kidding? It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And thank you, Robert. Grazie tanti. And no trip to Paris is complete without a visit with the delightful Tanisha Townsend. Whether she's producing her popular podcast series, Wine School Dropout, updating her guidebook to the top 75 wine bars in Paris, or leading custom wine tours throughout France, Tanisha brings a marvelously unstuffy approach to wine communication. Let's see what she has to say. Tanisha, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to have you here. How's life in Paris? Life in Paris is good. The sun has come back out because um, that's not always a thing. Um, you know, the sun is setting later. That means spring is right around the corner. Things are blooming. Wine festivals. I know wine festivals are coming up. What wine festivals are you headed to soon? I am deciding on Provine or not. I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah. Well, since we're here to talk about Vin Expo, yes. um, I can actually say, so I was supposed to go to Provine, as many of us were when lockdown happened in 2020. I opted not to go this year because I'm going to another conference at the same time. And I, I went to um, Vin Expo and I, I just thought it was fabulous. I'd rather go to Paris than to Dusseldorf any day. That's kind of what I'm leaning towards now. Like, well, I've done Vin Expo. Do I need to do anything else? I got the information I needed since I am largely focused on um, French wines and the, the occasional spirit. I'm, I'm kind of where I need to be. So do I need to go to somewhere else too? So that's, that's a good segue for me to actually intro you because, of course, I know you, but I, I realize that maybe everybody who's listening doesn't. So here's a little um, uh, intro bit. So Tanisha Townsend, you are American from Chicago, but you were living in Paris. Um, I actually, I want to tell you what I read when I was going through your bio that oh, fascinated gosh. me. So I thought of the matrix you are our very own neo tanisha 
you actually live two lives. In one life, you are a wine educator, a wine ambassador, a wine communicator. But in the other life, you are a security or you were a security and privacy specialist for the information for the data world. I mean, like very disparate. So let's start with that. How do you go from being, you know, a, a data security specialist in the public sector to being a podcaster and a writer and a, you know, a guide writer and a tour guide? So all of those things are true, but going from data to wine is because data was stressful and I needed to drink. So I started drinking wine. So that was the first transition, drinking it. Then after I was drinking wine, I was living in D.C. at the time because that's where I went to grad school. So I started going to festivals because there's a bunch of wine in Maryland and Virginia. Their wine industry is just amazing. So if you haven't had it, get into that. But in that, I started going to festivals. And at one festival in particular, I was tasting wine and it happened to be the winemaker pouring it. And I was very fascinated and enthralled by the flavor of the wine. And then he was telling me about it. And I was like, so how do these flavors work? And I just couldn't wrap my mind around that a grape fermented into this beverage, but it tasted like cherries and blueberries and hints of oak. I didn't understand how all of that other stuff happened. So from there, I took a W set course, which is a natural progression. I mean, why not take a certification course to find out totally. about what you want to know? Why not? Go for it. I mean, Google wasn't it. So let's let's get to the crux. So did that, um, met a gentleman who worked at Y Marketing. He was like, oh, I'm starting a firm. You should work with me. So then I did that. In addition, I was still doing my data security um, work, but I started excelling at wine. I was good in the marketing portion. I was good in the tasting portion. I was going on trips and things were happening for me in that sector. And all of that kind of snowballed into what we have today. You've got wine guides, you've got wine tourism, you've got a podcast, you do presentations, you know, you write, you speak. Do you think back to what it was like being that person who was new to wine and being fascinated? but really not understanding it. Is that, is that part of how you inform your content for your audience now? Yes. I remember having no idea why the flavors and how the flavors became what they were. I didn't understand how it worked, but it also fascinated me the most. So when I do tastings now, and when I take people on tours now, or do wine dinners or things like that, I talk about flavors because I think that's what people... That's what people want to know. And I think that's what confuses people the most, the actual flavors of it. And they feel like they need to know the flavors of wine as opposed to flavors of, say, gin or whiskey or beer. Like there are beer tastings, but no one is given a Heineken and they're like, oh, I don't know that much about beer. I don't know about the malt and the wheat. Does it pair with this? I'm not sure. What should I do? No one says that. But when it comes to wine, oh, I don't know that much about wine. I don't know if this pairs. Um, should this be? Relax. I want you to think of it not just like beer, but I want you to be as relaxed as you are with other beverages. Know what you like and stand on that. In some ways, though, that puts us, because I agree 
wholeheartedly, right? Um, taste comes first, like, and trust. Like it, this is basic communication, marketing, friend making, right? Um, but that does put us at odds with a lot of the wine industry who says we must educate our audiences and they must understand why what we're doing is so important. You know, that, that kind of ivory tower space in wine. So what has the response been to your, what I would describe as like warm and welcoming, very friendly approach to wine? The response is good because the way I approach my tastings and tours, it's like, you are talking to a friend that knows a lot about wine. So you can ask all the questions that you've ever wanted to ask. If you've ever been nervous about something or hesitant or just been like, I always wonder, but I didn't think I could say it out loud or, you know, anything like that. You can ask me. I mean, I, I love that, but I also feel it's a little bit heartbreaking that somehow in our industry, we've set up this space where someone feels like we have to say, no, no, it's okay for you to ask the hard, you know, any of the questions, drink what you like, because that's the best thing become a wine drinker in your head and screw all the rules around how we are supposed to engage with wine. You said something that I really, really want to talk about today. You turned your communications into paid wine guides. Can you just tell me a little bit about how that came to be and who the audience for your wine guides are? Yes. It started because I was doing tours in the city. I do day trips to Champagne. Yes. And so we'll get to that in a second. But it started with doing wine tours in the city. And when I first got here, Nobody was really doing that. Um, I look at the people who are doing that now and they weren't, I mean, maybe a couple of them were, but I didn't know them, but no one was doing, going to different places to drink wine. And so that's what I was doing. It wasn't, you come to my facility, you sit down, we taste. No, I'm taking them to wine shops and wine bars and then we taste together. And it would always be private. It never uh, happened to be that there were multiple people that would book on the same day or anything like that. And over time, I'm like, there are only so many people that I can serve. I can't do this every day. Um, the wine bars open aren't open every day. So I'm like, if I can only do two, three people at a time, you know, a few times a week, there has to be a better way to do this. So I actually think the conversation was with my brother and we were just brainstorming on different things that can be done. I was like, I should write these places down. Because people also would come into town and they're like, hey, what's going on? I know you're the wine girl. Where can I go to drink? Where can I get a good glass of wine? And I'm like, it's Paris, anywhere. And he's like, no, no, but like a good glass. And then I thought about it and I'm like, here at restaurants, you can't just go to any restaurant and sit at the bar and have a drink. Whereas in the States, most restaurants have a separate bar and you can sit there. So what people were really asking me for is where can I go if I just want to have a drink and then maybe I have dinner later at another place? Yeah. So I was like, huh, I've been to all these bars. I need to do something with this. And so I brainstormed for a bit and then came up with the name 75 in the 75. So Paris is the 75th department of this region. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I locked myself in the 75 wine bars, but I'm like, at that time, when I thought of this, I wrote them all out. I think I had already been to like 60, somewhere in there. So I'm like, oh, well, what's 15 more? 
I remember when I was going to Paris, if I wanted to know where to drink, I'd go online, I'd Google, it would generally be like the David Leibowitz recommendations for wine bars, things like that. So you made a decision, um, and this is part of what I want to talk about, to monetize something that often had been part of free content amongst, you know, bloggers, wine writers, everything else. What you said to me when we talked at lunch is you said, I got sick of giving my work away for free. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that I'd love if we could just talk about that for a little bit, because in the context of wine writing and wine communication, we do have issues around how we monetize and the willingness of our perceived willingness of consumers to pay for it. You know, the number of times that I've heard from someone, oh, you know, I've thought about monetizing it, but no one would pay for that. That is true for some things. I think you have to really figure out what it is that people will pay for. Clearly, if people are consuming your content, if you're getting, you know, hundreds, thousands of views to your website, you know, you have all these followers on social media, people enjoy your content. Think of how you can package it so people will pay for it. Um, for me, it was slightly easier because people will pay for Paris things and to make their life here easier. Um, people are always coming here. They're always wanting to know what's new, what's good, what's fun and things like that. So that made it slightly easier for me. But everybody has something that they can sell or monetize. I truly believe that. And you know what? I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think though that you hit the nail on the head with this idea of ask what it is that provides value for your audience, not ask what it is that you want to sell, right? Like Absolutely. there's a sweet spot in between those two things and, and actually doing the work of identifying or understanding what that sweet spot is, is often, I would say the issue. Um, I mean, I work in wine and sometimes I sit down and I read the wine writers and I think to myself, well, I've, feel like I didn't know enough going in and I still don't know enough coming out. And I just wasn't the audience for this. Right. You're like, I'm in the same place. This isn't right. Yeah. Let me ask point blank questions. Do you accept sponsorship or advertising from wineries or from bars, cafes, bistros to get into your guides? No. Not yet. I think I might do that going forward because I'm working on the second edition now because unfortunately uh, several uh, bars closed because of uh, COVID. So working on the second edition of it. Um, I'm thinking sponsorship is a way to go uh, for it. Um, and by sponsorship, it wouldn't be, okay, yeah, they are sponsors, so I'm going to put them in the guide. It would be they were already going to be in the guide. Maybe they just want a bigger page or maybe they just want, you know, more space in the guide or something like that. But I would never well, use it as a way to, oh, let me just add in anybody, whether I like them or not. But but to be fair, it's a very reasonably priced guide that you oh, for sure. that you sell and we all have to make a living. Jumping from your guides, your content, knowing all of these brands, knowing the places to go. Here we are. We've done Vin Expo. Um, first time in two years that most of us have been to something this big. Uh, mm -hmm. Since 
the last time you've been or the last time that you've been to these kind of large trade conferences, are there any trends, behaviors, you know, anything that you're seeing that are strongly different this year after two years of COVID? Um, I really think that the no and low alcohol thing is super huge. Um, there were quite a few no alcohol and very low alcohol wines that I came across. There were a couple of spirits, but there were uh, more than I've seen before. And by more meaning like one that they had them there. Um, but I think that's something that's really. They had some at all. Right. Which, right. Means because that did yeah. not used to be a thing. But yeah, they were there. And I actually got a chance to speak with a couple and one. We'll talk to them later on um, in a little more depth. But they are making their and they can't call it wine necessarily, but they are making their beverages in a way that so closely simulates wine. And people look at it like, oh, well, you know, why don't you just drink wine then? Well, everybody doesn't want to drink wine for maybe health reasons, for religious reasons. And they still want to be a part of something. That was the thing that got me, the way they explained it. People that want to be still a part of the event, a part of the celebration. It's not like, oh, I'm just a teetotaler and I'm judging those who drink. No, I don't drink for whatever reason, but I still want to drink in a pretty glass. I still want to have something that looks nice in here. Yeah, that was a trend that I saw um, a lot. And then there were also people that were interested in that because there these booths that I went to for these uh, for no and low, uh, they weren't empty. Interesting. What about on the spirit side? Did you see when you're when you're in the spirits pavilion at Ben Expo, were there things that you were looking at that you're like, oh, Spirits have learned from wine or wine has learned from spirits. Packaging, definitely. And I actually want to, I want to figure out how I can do a season of that on um, the podcast about packaging, because I'll speak specifically to the French. They are not taking kindly and have not spoken favorably over alternative packaging, whether it's the box, the carton, the can, the individual bottle, they, mm -mm. I went to a presentation, this is a few years back, uh, uh, about wine in a can. It was called the can-can. So, you know, being the can-can. But I'm bumped. Right. That was them, not me. Don't don't at me for this. It wasn't my joke. Um, and French people were losing it, okay? Losing their mind. Oh, that's gross. Who's going to drink wine out of a can? What are you even talking about? The... That how much energy it takes to make the aluminum can, that already got me. Yes, but the alternative packaging thing was interesting to me. I tasted a few wines in a can. Uh, there is uh, another wine company, wine producer, that is making their wine in a beer style. It's a wine base. And then they're adding flowers to it. You, I'm actually sitting in the right place. Interesting. It's this. So it looks oh. like a beer, but you see it's infused. So a base of wine yeah. infused with a flower. So I haven't oh. opened this yet, but it's infused with some hot flowers, water. You need to interview them. Peels. Absolutely. Um, I definitely want to talk to them. And then a couple of people that are doing uh, cans. So so. so something like that, do you think that a product like that appeals to the natural wine market more than it does, say, a traditional wine market? Absolutely. Traditional wine market and traditional wine drinkers are not necessarily flexible. 
and they're like, they wanted the bottle. They still want the natural cork. They're still on that um, and don't want to see it as anything else. This is something that is for um, a wine brand that is trying to maybe diversify their offerings and have something else for a different group of drinkers. I don't necessarily think this will lead people into wine, but this does give a, a wine company who makes this, it gives them something else to sell and something else to do with their their grapes or their um, pomace or things like that. In terms of the people, because you talk to people from all over the world for the podcast, we haven't had a chance to talk about the podcast. You know, what are you seeing being the places or the audiences that are interested in these risk-taking, we will use the word innovators begrudgingly, wine brands? Do audiences love it? How's it working in the market? Audiences do love it because I'll say my audience is not one that is necessarily deeply ingrained in wine. They are people who came to wine later uh, in life, but are enjoying it now. Maybe they have been in it a while, largely consumers, uh, but they've been, uh, some of them have been drinking wine a while and will spend money on nicer or more expensive bottles of wine. Then there are also a lot that are new to wine, new to understanding it and wanting to broaden their broaden their horizons a bit and not just drink the same two, three things all the time. They're just not entrenched. They're just like, hey, wine, what can wine be? Yeah, they're not so caught up and it has to be a bottle, it has to be a natural cork, it has to have the wax on the top or a certain foil and all that. They're not into that. That's a great segue because uh, I would like for you to share with us, uh, you are a communicator across multiple media. What do brands need to know to get the most from someone like you? One, brands need to know how I operate. They need to know what my content is and what my content looks like. Um, brands also need to know what they want from a communicator. Like, do they just want people to be informed? Do they want to make sales? Do they want people to sign up for an email list? Like, what are they trying to do? And if they're trying to inform, what are you trying to inform? Um, are you trying to inform them about a new product you have? Um, about your flavor profile, about your um, vineyard practices, about your winemaking techniques. Think about that. Then if you're talking to me specifically, think about how I talk about wine, then you will know some of those things I'm not talking about. I'm not getting on with anyone doing any videos and you won't see me digging my hands in the soil. You might see me taking pictures in the vines because that looks kind of cool. Like I will do that. But other than that, that's not something I talk about because then trying to break that down for your average consumer, they do not care. They don't care about that part. Can now, you just say that once more for the people right. in the back? Soil, they, do people they care? They do not care. Now, I will say this, though. If they are visiting your vineyard, then that is something that you can discuss with them then or talk about, but not at length. Okay. You can just say, hey, look, this is what the soil looks like. This is why it's important. If I'm there, I care. If I'm away, leave it at bay. I'm just, you know, because I'm a rapper. All right. So <laughs> good. Just, That's good rhyme. Just throw that out right quick. Now, there are times that I, that I myself get into it because I can be a geek about things. And um, I'll speak on champagne specifically when they have their um, champagne week in the spring. 
um, the different, some of the different champagne producers will have a big vase and they'll have their soil in it. So uh, understanding how things taste and the flavor profile based on what the soil looks like, like one stand will have these big chunks. Another one will have these little small pebbles. Another one, it looks like sand. So from that standpoint, that's kind of fascinating. But if you are able to tie it into something, me just looking at soil on my own or your average consumer looking at soil on their own, like, okay, what does this even mean? Last question. Okay. Opinion. Emily in Paris. <laughs> what is hysterical about this is my current season of Wine School Dropout is like a little riff on Emily in Paris. It's Tanisha in Paris, and I'm talking to real people doing real things in um, French culture, um, beverage, wine, that kind of thing, largely Americans. And I did this because people look at Emily in Paris as like the truth and the real thing, and that's really how it is. And that could be your experience. If you come here and as a tourist, or maybe if you come here for your company for a little, for a period of time, but for people who live here and walk around every day and need to learn the language and want to get their cable turned on and want to open a bank account and want to do real things here, that's not it. <laughs> that's not it at all. So we can find that on Spotify, Apple, anywhere the podcasts are served as Wine School Dropout. Absolutely. Brilliant. Tanisha, I'm I'm so glad to see you. I'm Wait, glad to have been able to We're visit done. with you. Well, no, we can still chat, but I, I, I get to do my outro now. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And there it is. That's a wrap on this FinExpo edition of Uncorked. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you, Tanisha, and thanks to everyone for listening in. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.